the shows happen, that's great. But I don't really remember those because my job was I took what little bit of heroin I had, did enough so I wouldn't get sick on stage. And then as soon as we were done, like I walked off stage and went out the door. Welcome back to another episode of All Booked, Sterling Municipal Library's podcast where we talk to you about the books we'd like to recommend. And Sam is bringing us a book that's about, I guess, drug, sex, and rock and roll, Sing Backwards and Weep? Yes, this is uh, Mark Lanigan, who was from Screaming Trees, and then he was with Queens of the Stone Age for a while and did like solo records. They were like one of the big, I guess, grunge explosion bands that didn't quiet hit as big as some of the bands. Of course, they were also one of the ones that had been around for like 15 years before that or 10 years. Mm-hmm. Like they were an old band that, you know, it was like their seventh album was the one that blew up and people were like, oh, you're this great new band. And it's like, no, 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 we've been, we've been around <laughs> for like, you know, over a decade. But yeah, yeah. So this is a book about, he wrote as I think a favor for somebody. He was good friends with Anthony Bourdain. So he was good friends with Anthony Bourdain. And then he'd always told him he should write these stories. And then when Anthony Bourdain, you know, committed suicide, he was just like, yeah, I guess I should do that. You know, Tony told me I should do it. I should do it. So mm-hmm. it kind of got him doing it. Everyone's like, you know, you'll feel better. So my favorite thing at the, even at the book, I think he kind of says near the end, he said to interviews, like this was supposed to be like, you're putting all this to bed. He's like, I'd already done it. Yeah. Like I was already past it. He goes, this did not, it made every, it was like the worst experience oh, of my life. All the wounds. Like going through and doing all the, everything. So yeah. Cause it's not just talking about it. You have to like write, you have to write it all down and commit it to page. Right. And if you're reliving bad things, I can imagine that makes it worse. Yeah, and it's not like, you know, a lot of good stuff. It's like if you look at the back of the book, all the people who did reviews of it or gave their little soundbite were all like, it's like ridiculously honest, like brutal, just everything about it. Like he did not make try to make himself look good in anything that he did. It is called Sing Backwards and Weep, so. Right, which is like from a song lyric. But yeah, it is very much. I mean, the pictures of him, it's like in front of a bar with like a cigarette hanging out his mouth looking kind of grumpy. From the old days. So, I mean, it's very, like I said, it just blew me away. Like, I read this. This was my second shot book. I was like, I'm just going to feel bad after getting my second <laughs> vaccine. So, I'm just going to lay on the book and read on the about couch someone and, else feeling worse. Yeah. And I pretty much read this all in like one shot. So, so where does the book start? Does it start with his music career or does it start with him? It starts in his youth. Like, he okay. grew up in a small town in uh, West Washington, Ellensburg, Washington. Okay. A small town full of coal miners, loggers, bootleggers, South Dakotan dirt farmers, criminals, convicts, and hillbillies of the roughest, most ignorant sort. And only a few hours away, probably, from the grunge scene. Right. Yeah, they weren't far from Seattle. So they were enough that when bands started out, but again, they started out, Screaming Tree started out in the early, mid-80s. Oh, wow. So they were going, and they ended up on SST Records, which Greg Ginn from the Black Flag was the owner and stuff. So they played with all these bands that were kind of like this weird psychedelic, you know, not even like punk band, but they kind of fit in that scene. Those are the people they played with. But it was like real, like, I guess a, a harder rock version of like the psychedelic music that mm-hmm. from like the 60s mm-hmm. and stuff. So he did that, and he basically, he just hung out. He was kind of a hook. You know, he was already like basically an alcoholic by 15. His parents were kind of one of his parents was a college professor and another person. They just kind of let him do his own thing while they were doing their careers and just left him alone. So he was kind of a mess at a young age. 
And they started hanging out at a video store. They started working there, and it was the brothers had a band. And then, like, they broke up because, you know, they're brothers and they fight. Right. And then, so they ended up coming back and reconciling. And he was around, like, do you know, do you sing? You actually, at first, like, do you want to play drums for us? And he's like, okay. And Did he know dude, how to play drums? No, not really. <laughs> so the guy That's who awesome. was going to sing was actually really good at playing drums. This guy, Mark Pickerel. Who actually has a great solo career after the band, after he quit the band, he quit before they blew up. You know, he just, they're like, he's a better drummer. So he started playing drums and Mark Lanigan started singing. And it's funny. He's got a really like low baritone voice, but they didn't know anything about music. So he's like, every song writes like really high. So all of it's like, (laughs) so he's like trying to sing really high. He's got this like. Like, how are you? Like, very low voice. Yeah. Which, I mean, if you ever heard their big hit was called, you know, for anyone listening, it's called uh, Nearly Lost You. It was like, you know, I nearly lost you there. Like, it was a big, mm-hmm. it was on the single soundtrack. It was like a big thing. And there, it's interesting reading the story about how much, how angry they are over that because they basically gave their biggest song away to get on the soundtrack to the record label and they got like no royalties out oh, of wow. it. No. It's like, like, all right, the one that sold millions of copies, we got no money. And that's all the happy stuff. Like, really, he just... <laughs> Them not getting any money for their yeah. selling song. That's what's kind of interesting is he had the cred as kind of like this older dude in the scene. So, like, when Nirvana came and played the Ellensbury Library early on, met them, like, oh, my God, like, y'all are the dudes from Screaming Trees. Like, you know, we have all these, the old, you know, punk rock SST records. Like, we love you guys. So, like, all these people knew them. Mm-hmm. So, like, y'all should move to Seattle. So, they all eventually did. And then that was it. Like, once Nirvana hit, they got bought up. And so, they made all this money. But at the time, he was already, like, I don't know, he's a big guy. Like, you know, not, like, weight-wise, but he's, like, a tall, big, strong dude. So, when it came, you know, Kurt Cobain and them were, like, little guys, like, Lane Staley <laughs> and stuff like that. So it's like, who are we going to send into like the really rough parts of town to get our drugs? And he's like, I'll go. So that's really kind of like what he did. He's like the older guy that that's what he said. One of the sad parts about the book, he's like, I should have been these guys, big brother trying to take care of on the road. But I was like, the dude's like, yeah, man, I'll go get our drugs. Like how much heroin do you need? I got it. And so that was kind of like what he just did. They all kind of like progressively, which was sad because like until they moved to Seattle, like he had been clean for five or six years while the oh, band wow. was to- like, he made it through tours around the country in vans sober. I was like, yeah, I just got to the point I would like, I would wake up in different towns from drinking too much. Mm-hmm. Like not even on tour. Like he would just oh, be like, wow. apparently I got really drunk, got on my motorcycle and I'd wake, wake up like and not know where I was. Like, where am I? Mm-hmm. Like in a field. So it was like really bad. So he had, that's what he said early on. He had really bad addiction issues. So, you know, for me coming from a family that, you know, many people in my family have addiction issues. It was like hit really close to home. It's like, man, like this is like really kind of how it goes. You know, the music part, it's kind of interesting. It starts out really good detailed stories of like, here's us on tour. Like we did this and here's where we got in this fight and stuff like this. Cause the two brothers were kind of, they would fight and it was like very volatile. The band, like mm-hmm. they really probably even before they moved to Seattle, they weren't really friends anymore. They and were like, I, I get that impression that it happens frequently with bands. Yeah. It's like you start out when you're young and then, you know, it's kind of that, you know, it's the whole like high school sweetheart thing. You get married and after a while. You're like, like, oh, my God, like we totally got we along one at 16. Thing in common. Right. Now that we're older, it's like, yeah, man, like we want totally different things. So that was kind of it. And he doesn't sugarcoat the fact that he was kind of a jerk to all of them, that a lot of it was his attitude. And then, you know, which he's there. I know there's been some blowback in the after part of this book. Is the blowback about things he's written about other people? Yeah, because okay. him and the lead guitar player or the guitar player of the band really apparently do not get along. They did not like each other. 
Oh, wow. Which is funny because they had started the band. But, I mean, it was pretty much by, like, the first tour, like, from, you know, year one, they already just did not like each other, did not Which get along. awkward because touring puts you in very close quarters with each other. Yeah. And that's what's crazy. There was, like, you know, a couple times. They had this one you know, great story because everyone ended up okay, but they were, like, in different vans because he would ride with, like, all the road crew people or the other bands. So he's like, I don't want to be in a van with him. Dang. Like, I really just, I'm not interested. Did it feel like he was like blowing anything out of proportion about the lead guitarist or like selling him? I mean, you want to say, because I know, like I said, he's been his name's Gary Lee Connors. So they call yeah. him Lee in the book. His other brother, who was the bass player, like they would be like they were known. Like I've read stuff in the past where like they would get in these violent fist fights, like in the studio, the two brothers. Yeah, wow. And they're big, like my size, like they're okay. big dudes, which as a kid, I really dug. So I was like, those guys look like me and they're playing <laughs> rock and roll, you know, on, like a big stage. They're that so was, cool getting into fights all the time. <laughs> right. You know, so it was kind of that. And they were all like, you know, Western. It'd be like, you know, Western Washington kids, they yeah. were like, weren't coming out of like downtown Seattle. They were coming out like farmlands and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they were very used to handling things in more handcuffs. Yeah, you know, more down to earth manner things, you know. We're just, we're people of the salt, you know, we're just going to fight. And that was kind of it. So that's how they handled it. So it was really interesting to see, even if, even if you don't know much about the band, just interesting to see that dynamic. And you, know, you have these two dudes who are brothers. You have this guy who's kind of a mess. And I say, again, this is all the fun part of the book. This is like the first <laughs> few chapters where oh, you're wow. just like, okay, man, like things were really wild. Yeah. And then if you looked up anything, you'll find a lot of the information. I know I spend a lot of time when I'm on here, like it's still worth reading the book, even after I tell you all this stuff. It ended up a point where after they started getting big and they lived in Seattle, like he'd actually started like making drugs himself, like manufacturing oh, and wow. selling drugs out of his apartment to the point. It was like, Hey man, we're going to go on this tour of Europe. And I was like, Oh, like I have to go because like I'm making really good money selling crack right now. Like that's what I'm doing. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. you know, can't and, leave it behind. Like this is, are you sure we need to go? Like, yes, mm-hmm. we need to go. And it kind of just all fell apart because he just, you start reading the stories early on. It's like very d- detailed. Here's what we did on tour. We were in this city, like this crazy thing happened, blah, blah, blah. And then it's basically by the you know latter parts of the book. It's like, oh yeah, we played on like, you know, Jules Holland show. And then I spent the next 30 pages. like, here's me trying to score drugs in Europe. It's like the shows happen. That's great. But I don't really remember those because my job was, I took what little bit of heroin I had, did enough so I wouldn't get sick on stage. And then as soon as we were done, like I walked off stage and went out the door. There was no wow. like high fiving, no water. It was like, mm-hmm. okay, or I need money. Give me money because I've got to go find more heroin. And it was just really sad, very comical at times because it was just the bad situations he would put himself in. And, you know, like getting jumped and beaten up and everything taken and then going back to the hotel and like you by chance, he found out he could take money off of like the credit card that the record label used at the thing. So he'd get more money, go back out, get ripped off again, come back, get more money, finally find someone who didn't rip him off. And it's like this is and then, oh, I have to get on a train and somehow find my way to the next city in like Germany to play the next night. Wow. So, I mean, it's really just sad. And it's like, you're like, this is what this guy's doing. and But it paints a picture. So, you know, if you ever wonder what the people in your life or people you know who are going through addiction issues, how ridiculous it gets and how yeah. all-consuming. This is a great book just to get that kind of understanding. What was his turning point to try to get clean? I'm assuming he's clean now. Yeah, he's been clean for a long time. That's how the book – and that's what's kind of, you know, funny. Like, it ends with him going to rehab – like, his rehab stay. Mm-hmm. 
So again, he was big. He was friends with like him. He was real close to Kurt Cobain from Nirvana yeah. and Lane Staley from Alice in Chains. So one of his big things is he came home and he, again, he's, you know, at this point he's a full blown junkie. And like he was talking about, you know, one day Kurt Cobain calls him up and he's just like, he doesn't answer. He just lets him leave a message. He's like, you know, I'm, I know he was sick from tour. Like he's probably looking to get more drugs. Like I'm not sharing my, my stat. Like, oh, I got this little bit left and all that. And then, you know, a couple of days later, like we can't find him. Where is he? So they go out and they look at the apartment, you know, the door to the upstairs is locked and all this. And I'm like, well, whatever, man. You're like, we'll find him. And, you know, like the next day they find him where he killed himself. And he's like, he had called me the day before and I did nothing. And so even though they didn't get along, so the, what pushes that forward is that they were good friends. They did all this. So he always, he keeps coming back to the book about how he felt guilty. He never picked up the phone and, yeah. you know, but he was in his own junk, you know, and none of these people really were, they were great friends. But at this point, all of them had the thing that came first. Yeah. It's just like, they were not there for emotionally supporting yeah. and taking care of each other. It's like basically any conversation I have is just one more second. You're keeping me back from drugs. Mm-hmm. So they all kind of had that. Oh, I don't hang out. No, no, I don't want to hang out with you. Or they occasionally be like, hey, we're all going to get clean together and stuff like that. And I mean, so you have all these stories of just the ridiculousness. So jump ahead, since they were really good friends and everything, when he hit the bottom, is that uh, Courtney Love actually got like left him all this information with the pawn dude because they knew he always went and pawned stuff, this guy, to get drug money. So he's like, hey, you know, Courtney left you all these paperwork for this place that if you ever want to go to rehab, he's like, I don't need all that. And basically, he finally ended up homeless, like living on the street with like a dude, a drug dealer he had ripped off coming to kill him. And he was like, I'm going to go to the – and a cop that was like, if you don't leave Seattle, we're going to put you in jail because we're just done with you. So he literally just had physically had nowhere else to go. Yeah. So like a year earlier, he's like touring Europe and all this and like, you know, playing Tonight Show. You know, Jules Holland's like the Tonight Show over Mm -hmm. in England and stuff. So he's doing all this stuff and it's like, okay, now you're, I'm living on the street, like unrecognizable, like, you know, emaciated, just hit the bottom. So it's like, okay, shows up to the pawn shop, gets the stuff and goes and gets in a rehab. And that was kind of where he just was like, I'm done. Like, this is where this is the happy ending y'all get. Like, yeah, I'm in rehab. And right after that was when, like, they found Lane Staley dead. So it was kind of like, okay, so like everybody, I guess it was a little further after that. But that's where he kind of ends the book. It was like this happened where it was kind of like I'm out of me being the one who was the biggest junkie who went and got everything for Mm -hmm. everybody. Somehow I made it out the other side. And it's like, you know. There's a lot of guilt that goes with that, but I'm, you know, clean this many years. And that's when he started, you know, Josh Homie, who's from Queens of the Stone Age. He actually has a story where he took him out. You don't know if you've ever seen him. He's kind of like a clean cut. Usually has like blonde hair, comb back. <laughs> and so he took him out to get drugs and everywhere they went, it was like, You're, who's the cop? <laughs> so it was like, you know, he's all kind of looks run down. He's got the guy who's just like, hey, we're hanging out. So he's like. I mean, he had Caius and stuff, but it wasn't like it was his first big national tour. He's on like Lollapalooza mm-hmm. with him and stuff. And it's like, you want to come hang out with me? Like, go score some drugs? Like, yeah, <laughs> man, I might, yeah, I'd either sit on the bus or. Okay, sure. I mean, it'll probably be cool. I get to see Chicago. And he like takes him into like the darker side yeah. of Chicago. And it's like, yeah, them getting beaten up and stuff, like almost getting shot because like, you know, why are you bringing an undercover cop in here? And it's oh like, got his little comb over. And he's like, <laughs> and he's like little do you know that it's like, dude, this dude's like, and, uh, you know, basically like one of the early stoner metal bands and stuff. Yeah. But it's just he looks really nice. Like, you, you see him, you're like, this guy looks like he's, he's on drugs. He's on right. drugs. Look at his hair. Like, he looks <laughs> like he'd be a quarterback or something. 
But again, he was not a hard drug user like, yeah. you know, Mark Lanigan was. Mm-hmm. And it was just like it scared the hell out of him where he was like, I'm never going. And then after he got cleaned, he was like, hey, man, I'm doing these songs with Queens of the Stone Age. It'd be cool if you sang on them. So he started doing that for years and was able to tour with them and not start using again. So and then now he's like lives in Europe and has been clean. Did you learn any fun dirt about any other bands? There's a lot of interesting stuff because, yeah, he did not hold back. Like he told one story about how Kurt Cobain was going to quit Nirvana pretty early on. Or no, Chris Novoselic. Yeah, so the bass player Chris Novoselic of uh, Nirvana was going to quit. And he's like, dude, like, you're crazy. He's like, well, do y'all need a new bass player? You know, the brothers are always fighting. He was like, well, you know, he's like, <laughs> you should not quit. <laughs> right, like, you should not quit this band. Like, this is a killer band. Like, I have no, I just saw y'all. Like, I had no idea who you are. I just was here and saw the show. And like, you're really good. Like, don't do that. And so he's like, yeah, I felt really cool. He goes, then Bleach came out. And he goes, you know, they started getting a buzz. And then they got big. And it's like, you know, and he was apparently like this close to quitting. Wow. And then just the, the tour they did with Alice in Chains was just like super depressing in a way because like they're going into canada and like they all they could really find a place to hide in their bus was like a syringe and, you know if you got busted but they were able to like dig out a parts so they basically all three of them are sharing the same syringe mm-hmm. oh gross i know but you know when you're you're that bad i was about to say i highly doubt they even thought about oh, it oh yeah other I than i wish oh, i had no, my yeah. own <laughs> Which I think that was tour. He ended up in like a Canadian hospital with blood poisoning. You know, this big thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you're probably going to have to amputate your arm. They basically left him on a gurney in a hallway for three days. Just giving him like antibiotics. He's like, I was just there. You know, the band moved on. I was like, hey, man, we're just going to go out. And I don't know if someone else on the tour like stood in to sing for a couple of shows. Yeah. And stuff. And it was just like, then finally it was like, okay, my arm's not going to fall. It'll be cut off so I can leave now. Wow. He's like, So then I cleaned up for a little bit. And that's the thing. I mean, these are I've read a lot of music biographies in my life or autobiographies where people kind of gloss over and it's like, like, I'm the hero of the whole band. Mm-hmm. And like, I did everything. And man, you know, I just I, everyone ripped me off. And he's kind of like, man, like I was like a really terrible dude. I mean, he had some stuff for his bandmates where he's like, this person was an idiot. And like, they wrote this way. And this song was terrible because. And that's kind of why he said the album where they first really hit it was the one where the guitar player who wrote most of their songs and admittedly, like, their lyrics were pretty bad early on. <laughs> and then finally, he kept trying to push to write more lyrics. The guy would be like, well, I wrote the whole song. You just sing what I wrote. And he kept being like, no, this is dumb. And sometimes <laughs> he would change things and try to make it hope the dude didn't realize he had changed stuff. But then once they got on like, kind of the major label, their first one, like, he started writing some of the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And then the album that got really hit, Sweet Oblivion, was the one where he was there. We're like, kind of like, it's the first album we made where all of us went in and we wrote it, everything together. together. Like, we did it as a group. And he goes, you know, and who knows? It was our biggest record. He's like, so I'm just saying that maybe we should have done that earlier on. <laughs> and so he was like, I don't you know. So the guitar player's mad because I wasn't that controlling. And it's like, well... Like, I tend to believe the guy because he so threw himself under the bus on so many things. things. Yeah. Like, the reason we were terrible on this show was because I I had passed out. Like, I can't remember if it was Conan O'Brien or whatever. But it's like I passed out on my bed, basically shot up, nodded off with his head hanging off the bed and, like, had vomited, like, tore up his throat. Like, when he woke up, he had stomach acid, like, tore up his throat and his nasal cavity. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I can hardly talk. He goes, I have to get up on like national TV and sing. And so it's like stuff you wouldn't notice if you watch the video. But if you go back now and watch on YouTube, you're like, you can tell it's like, uh, there's a lot more scratch to yeah. it. 
And he's like, yeah. So he's like, it was. Yeah, you tend to believe someone who's just like, I think my song lyrics might have been a little better than his. Right. If he's also just like, and I was a monster for many years. Pretty much. I would. I, only thing I kept thinking, I would love to see the other member of the band write something just because of what it was like dealing with yeah. this guy and the band. Because it was. Especially because there's so much that he even says he doesn't remember. Like being able to to explain what it was like living with someone who doesn't even know probably half the stuff they did. Yeah. I mean, there was stuff I'm sure them reading, if they ever read any of this on the dudes who had to be like, Oh my God, like that's what he was doing when he wasn't with us. Wow. Yeah. When he, when he left really quick and said he was going back to the hotel. Yeah. Cause in one of them, he knew a guy in Europe. He knew where he could go in England or in London to get heroin and stuff. So he's like, Hey, I'm going to ride ahead with the dudes. It's like, there's no room with all the equipment. So he actually climbed in and laid it like on top of the amps oh in the back gosh. of the van so he could get to London to get drugs. Yeah. Right. So I'm out like, you know, he had been so long without it. Like, it's like, he's running. It's kind of like a really more macabre version of like trying to make it to the bathroom. Like, Oh God, I think I can make it. Wow. And he basically lost it like a half a block from the house ends up like you know puking in like a plant yeah. and falling out and he finally like, gets up and drags himself there but he's like here i am like hey man aren't you the dude from the screaming trees and he's like you know vomiting up like black stuff because of all the poison in your system from the heroin which he goes into very good detail of all of the stuff what happens to your body when you've done too much heroin well fortunately it doesn't sound like he glamorizes it no he does not it's just kind of so, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a sad book. There's a lot of great, but I mean, there's also a lot of really interesting things that about the Seattle music scene and, mm-hmm. you know, so just, maybe just people who are interested in grunge in general. Maybe um, I just think if you're interested, so people who should read this book, <laughs> a list. it's like, if you're really into like, you know, if you're in a music, bi- if you're in a biographies period, I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a sad, but it's a good nonfiction tale. He writes very well of like, this is a narrative. Yeah. So each chapter isn't necessarily some of them feed directly into each other, but most of them are like, okay, here's this story. They're all chronological, but mostly it's like, here's a story about this and a story about this thing that happened and this thing. So it's not every chapter is not like, and then, you know, it ends on Tuesday and starts on Wednesday. They're all kind of Mm self-contained, but you get a lot of interesting stories. So if you're into biographies, you're into like good nonfiction storytelling, it's good. It's not like on April 1st, we played this show and then that. It's not like done like a journal. It's done very much like, and then here's this tale about, you know, that's really happy. We did this thing that was amazing. We told this other band who was rude to us exactly what they could do to themselves. <laughs> and the next one's like, and then I went and tried to score heroin for like 12 hours. And some of them are just, if you're into black comedy, it's great. Cause I mean, it's very like, oh, that's dark, but it's funny. Like the fact that what a complete. And I'm idiot. sure it's a lot easier to to find the comedy in it, knowing that he is one of the people who made it out okay. Yeah. Like he he's still doing okay. He's sober, so it feels less bad to yeah. kind of think more deeply about how insane the lengths he would go to to score are. No, right, exactly. And then if you're into like again, if you're into the grunge scene, like Leslie said. Mm-hmm. And just, man, if you have anyone in your life that's been an addict or, you know, is an addict and you really want to understand how they think and, you know, kind of create some empathy just for the mess that your life becomes due to it, like it's a great book to read to kind of get that understanding because once you get past the first half of all the, we're in a band and we're doing this to the, it just shows how the band became such a, a minor part of his life just by writing the book because it no longer mattered. 
it was just a means to pay for the next high or, and it wasn't even like to get high anymore. It was like, I need to get heroin. Or I'm going to be sick and I'm going to yeah. not be able to function. So it was just, yeah. you know, I'm sticking before I get on this flight, I'm sticking a bunch of like syringes already pre-made in my sock to get on the airplane. So I know that for flying to Europe, it's going to be a 12 hour flight. I know I can get up every four hours wow. and do like a micro dose to make sure that I don't get sick. On Go the plane. into withdrawals. And yeah. yeah. And it's just like how just ridiculously all consuming it becomes. What is he doing now? You said he's living in Europe, but um, he still makes music like mm-hmm. he did when he was on Sub Pop. Like they had when they first got signed to the major, he moved there and Sub Pop Records, who again was like the band that everyone had been signed to early on. It was like the big independent label in uh, Washington. It's still there. I mean, it's still in Seattle. Like so, they had hired him to pay him money to do a solo record. So his first one he did, he was still like in good shape. Like he learned basically, he didn't really play guitar well, but he sat down and like learned guitar and played, made up all these songs. He wrote the song, sang them, then like played guitar to figure out how they were supposed to go. And so it was actually a really good, it was actually a really good record considering that he wrote it, not really knowing what he was doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the second album, then he did a second one, which took a lot longer. And he was like, but it was like his, kept calling it was like his masterpiece records. He did way too much, but <laughs> in the middle of it, he was also going off into this like, okay, then I lost six months because I was so out of it. Yeah. And then I get clean, I go work on the record, and then, you know, two months later, I'd be fall off hard again. So he kept having these issues of just come up. Then finally, it came to the point where I have to have the money or I'm going to get thrown out of my apartment, so I have to finish the record. So he really just, like, pushed in, stayed wow. on uppers, not downers, to get it done. Yep. And, yeah, so it was funny how even, like, that second album that he's, like, super proud of, the motivating factor of finishing it was I need money for drugs and to stay in my apartment so I don't get kicked out. Because the only way I make money is cooking drugs in my apartment. It It's always interesting to me to read these biographies and autobiographies written in that kind of, like, around the 1980s, uh, especially for entertainers, because you see, like, this very dark and, like, desperate world that existed in almost every corner of entertainment. I read the Robin Williams biography and it was the same thing in the 70s and 80s. It was literally just people like trying to get to the next like dose who yeah. just can't even remember like, yeah, maybe they did stand up comedy. Maybe they did music. They can't remember what they did, though. They were just waiting to get off stage so they could get high again. <laughs> well, it's something that's kind of cool that I'd actually heard in a podcast yesterday with uh, this guy, Guy Pachotto, who was the, one of the guitar players and vocalists for Fugazi. And he was talking, and it's just something that just hit me, kind of corresponds with this. He said, they were kind of a big underground band that people had courted. They just never did. So, like, we make our own records. We do a lot of our own stuff. And he's like, they asked him about things. Like, well, you know, was, we were around the music industry. It wasn't that we were against what was happening. It's just for us, we didn't, that template didn't fit us. He's like, can you see a lot of these artists who create all this art it's like but then you kind of sell it to a record label and stuff like that and you don't you no longer relate to it like here's this thing that came out of you that you love more than anything in the world and he goes and it's taken away from you and it's mm-hmm. kind of perverted and and no longer you don't recognize it anymore and he's like so it makes you literally suicidally depressed and he's like and that's not me being like mm-hmm. euphemistic like this is actually makes you because that's why you have so many of these musicians and artists get so depressed and end up you know killing themselves slowly via drugs because they created this thing and it got taken away from them and it became just something kind of perverse and ugly. And you kind of saw that with this, where the more it kind of got away from them, the worse it got. I mean, you Mm -hmm. saw Lane Staley and they would talk about how they got to the point they got sick of the fact they couldn't go to like 
the corner bar anymore. They couldn't go to the record store because people were like hounding them and wanting stuff from them. You know, what yeah. can you do? Tell yeah. us this, sign this, give us this, get that. And it became mm-hmm. where suddenly everyone, you had no relationship in your life where someone didn't want something from yeah. you. So the two dudes you got along with, you just hung out and did a bunch of drugs with because it kind of made you forget about how mm-hmm. you couldn't do anything. We're just going to say everyone here. wanted to take things from you. Yeah, and it was just interesting to see that turn about how, like, just hearing that way he said that yesterday, it very, very realistically makes you, you know, made you suicidally depressed from mm-hmm. having all of that. I mean, you look at that scene, I mean, you know, from the, the four of the big bands, including them, like, he survived, but, you know, Kurt Cobain killed himself. Lane Staley killed himself, basically locked himself in an apartment and did heroin until he died. Uh, you know, even Chris Cornell recently killed himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that point where you're like, how are these people that are so famous, so depressed? And it's like, well, you know, you made something <laughs> that you felt was beautiful. It's like having your child taken away from you. Yeah. And you no longer understand what it is. So, yeah, definitely a, a double edged sword of of that and just feeling like probably that you just can't have relationships anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, the people who might step in your life and be like, hey, dude, I'm really worried about you. I feel like maybe you need some help. Don't want to do that because, like, you're the big name. Like, yeah, I'll go score some for you, buddy. You right. want to hang out with me and sign my record? Right, exactly. Where you normally you're the person where, like, the, the book opens, and that's kind of the whole fun thing is that, you know, fun. So it, it opens with a story like the prologue and it's basically about a story of him and his, uh, you know, again, this is an early nineties, like drag queen roommate he had. Mm-hmm. So they're out and they get pulled over by the cops. Like they're holding and stuff. And he's like, he doesn't have his ID or anything. And the cops are hassling him, you know, like we're going to run you in. And he's like, where's your IDs? And my IDs in my apartment. And he's like, my IDs at my apartment sitting in like a bunch of little baggies of crack that I had <laughs> just cooked up to sell. And he's like, so, you know, and then finally the guy's like, Hey, aren't you in a band? And he gets, they get let go. Mm. And it's kind of that, like they're mm. out, you know, have drugs blown out of their minds, like walking on the street, probably staggering. But it's like, aren't you that celebrity guy? And it's like, we signed this for me. Thanks. And like, let him go. Wow. And it's kind of that, yeah, going to jail is not good, but it's kind of those things where it's like, man, that could have probably knocked him out of it or at least cleaned him up. Yeah, like when you hit the bottom faster, it's yeah. easier to get back probably than when people let you stay down there for a very long time. Right, where you know you can't even go to jail or get forced into rehab because the officer would rather have your autograph. Yeah, you know, and everyone around you is that way. Like, what can I get from you? So yeah, it's a bummer. So you know, to end on an up note, definitely read it. <laughs> it's good. It's you know, yeah, I know. It's all like this is the worst thing that's ever happened. You should read it, <laughs> and then. You know, just be be happy that you're not a celebrity that's getting hassled and doing drugs. Really, just be happy for your normal everyday life. It's really not as bad as you think. There you go. Look on the bright side. Right. All right. Well, on that note, I don't know how to end this on a happy note, but I guess I'll try. Thank you so much for bringing us a book that I actually do think is going to have a lot of appeal. As dark as you may make it sound, and I know it is dark. Yeah, but I think think it it goes through more people than just, oh, if you don't know about this area of music, it's not... Yeah. Out of bounds for you. Right. And it sounds still readable, even if it is sad. So there's a lot of humor in the sadness. Stay tuned next week for more fantastic book recommendations. Bye. Bye.